Welcome back everyone and welcome to our new listeners. I am Dr. Kara Wada. I'm a board certified pediatric and adult allergy immunology lifestyle medicine doc and systemic Sjogren's patient. We are on this journey of becoming more immune confident and confident in our interactions in the healthcare system together. And I'm so excited to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Merritt here today on the podcast. She is board certified in anesthesiology, pain medicine, and addiction medicine. And she is a clinician in private practice in the DC Baltimore area. And she helps patients manage pain so they can live a better life. She specializes in working with patients to empower them and find their own self-efficacy. In addition to medical treatments, she also embraces nutritional strategies and is also in the process of becoming a certified yoga instructor. She's a mom to two boys and a German shepherd. I am so excited to welcome you today and to talk all about pain and how we can help get some of our quality of life back. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Kara. Can you tell us a little bit, how did you end up in this area of medicine and find your place in this space? I ended up pursuing pain training after being introduced to it in anesthesia. I did an anesthesia residency. And when I began that training, I was paired with a mentor and the mentor was a woman named Pamela Vick, who I believe practices in Georgia still. She took me under her wing with a couple of other doctors and said, you don't know it yet, but you want to do pain medicine. And through just being introduced to it with her really seeing how if you help somebody with their chronic pain problem, you have help them with their worst thing really in their experience. It's it's heroic to um, take a person to the cath lab and fix their heart attack, but it's so impactful on a big scale to help somebody with their daily chronic pain. That was what I came to see through working close, closely with this mentor, having also longitudinal relationships with patients, because I was really seeing that there were other models of practice like anesthesiology, which is a great specialty. But for me, I missed that longitudinal Mm -hmm. contact with patients. So traditional anesthesiologist as maybe a medical student would picture it or someone listening that's not in medicine is the person who puts you to sleep for a procedure, make sure you're comfortable, get your epidural if you're having a baby, you know, kind of in that one setting. In this way, it sounds like you get to see patients over the longer term. That was one thing that drew me to to allergy immunology too. Yeah, Um, those long-term relationships have been valuable for me. Absolutely. I had a similar mentor who, who shared, oh, you need to, this is where you belong. (laughs) Sure enough, now, now she's still program director of our fellowship and I get to help her in that role as her assistant. It's it's cool to see how things come full circle over the years. So when we talk about chronic pain, is there a particular kind of definition of when pain goes from that acute setting to becoming chronic? Yes. In the pain literature, they'll tend to divide acute and chronic pain as two different things. Acute pain being pain lasting up to three months. A common model for that would be surgical pain or pain after an injury that we really expect for that run-of-the-mill pain to resolve within that period of time. And more often than not, it does. Then chronic pain is a pain problem that lasts longer than that. The CDC guidelines for opioid medications have been updated lately. They actually talk some about subacute pain 
being in the three to six or 12 month range and differentiating some things in there. But really most often we talk about acute versus chronic pain. I think maybe one thing to know is just that an episode of really intense or poorly controlled acute pain is a risk factor to have Mm. ongoing chronic pain. I guess that would not be super surprising. What are other scenarios that you tend to see or types of situations with patients that you would see in your day-to-day practice? In my day-to-day practice, we see patients with all kinds of different problems. Back pain is extremely common and is a huge cause of disability, <laughs> lost productivity in the U.S. And arguably, chronic pain, if you include the treatment costs and then also the disability costs, is the most expensive medical problem wow. in the United States. More than cancer, heart disease, all that. If you include like lost productivity, back pain is a huge driver of this. And a lot of our patients either had back surgery or might be at risk for or considering back surgery. Certainly there are times when those operations are appropriate, but they also have consequences and some patients will have significant pain afterward for a long period of time. So that's a common patient would be back pain or spine pain, which could include a neck or other areas. I actually have a lot of patients in my practice that I see who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, mast cell activation, and chronic pain related to these problems. So that's been really a niche I think that's developed for me over recent years. I think patients just seeing that, oh, this is someone that I can see who's willing to treat me and understand. I think there's probably a big overlap with your audience. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think even within the realm of allergy immunology, we are, have known and talked about mastocytosis, which is a bone marrow issue with those mast cells for a long time. But this ongoing conversation of connective tissue disorders, Ehlers-Danlos spectrum and mast cell activation is still this evolving entity that really is an active area of discussion and some research focus too, because perhaps some of it was we weren't looking for this years ago, but I also get the sense that this is a newer evolving clinical entity too. Akin to the best example I can think of within my purview, eosinophilic esophagitis. It's this allergic condition that affects your esophagus. And 25, 30 years ago, that was like a case report. Yes. Now it's actually relatively common in kids and adults and a cause of trouble swallowing or pain with, with eating or food getting stuck is a classic question on our board exams. But I always go back to the idea that as humans, we're still evolving. Yeah. And I think this idea that the immune system activation affects pain very significantly mm. for that patient population in general and others as well, I seem to ex- experience and observe that can be the case. I think the other tie into that, which we didn't talk much be- beforehand, I will see sometimes folks with chronic itch. And wondering where is that falling into more of like the neuropathic kind of aspects to things that I'm not as well-versed in within my training and background and have had to try to explore a little bit more. One of those sensations that we feel that just can be, oh my gosh, totally um, terrible effects on our quality of life. Yes. If you have for your chronic itch patients, a quick Google for them would be, there's an article in the New Yorker called The Itch by Atul Gawanda. So I would just throw that out. If you're interested in chronic itch, go make sure that's part of your thinking. Oh, thank you. I love his writing. Yeah. 
And I will have to, I'll set that aside for a little evening. Or link it to your site for patients. He talks about the overlap between pain and itch and those neuropathic aspects and just explores that a bit. It's hard, I think, for some folks to dissociate itch from allergy because they are so inextricably linked as we think about growing up mosquito bite or eczema or what have you hives, but itch does not always equal allergy. Yes. Actually, here's an interesting way that concept shows up in my practice is there are a lot of things that we do in pain management that are really symptom management. Yes. And gee, doc, why can't anybody pinpoint the exact thing that's hurting me or the exact reason that I itch in my own practice? That's how we operate and we think of it in a symptom management type of paradigm. That's really what gets people improvements in quality of life and maybe some level of acceptance and willingness to explore therapies for symptom management. It's challenging because patients really want those answers, but what about, isn't there a trigger? Can't you test me for this? Those kinds of things. That's reasonable to ask. And there are tests we can do, but sometimes in this imperfect world, we might get to the limits of the testings or, Hey, we've done those things. And at this point it's a symptom management issue. Yeah. This is what we've got. And we can continue to keep our eyes and ears open for other testing that may help down the line, but accept and move on in some respects too. Yes. That can be hard. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? I know you take a very kind of holistic approach to your patients. I think some folks will have many preconceived notions when they think of pain medicine as, okay, is this the doc that's just going to do injections or is this the doc that's just going to prescribe opioids? What are some of the things that you're able to offer to patients and have found really helpful? I think the best pain management options that are out there hopefully are found in practices like ours, where we can offer multidisciplinary type of approach for care for pain. Now I'm one discipline, right? I'm a anesthesiologist, pain doctor, but I'm going to refer a patient to consider physical therapy and Mm -hmm. other modalities, depending on their unique picture. So what should a patient be looking for or thinking about and what can they expect at a pain doctor? Hopefully it's more than just prescribed medications, but as a physician, certainly prescribed medications can be one of the options. Then again, like a multidisciplinary type of referral and considerations of other treatments. Those of us that are trained in fellowship in pain medicine also have training usually in various interventional techniques that might include nerve blocks or epidural injections for patients with significant spinal pain. We also do joint injections. So for arthritis or other painful conditions, those are some of the big things that we offer in our clinic. I know we had talked a little bit about some of the newer treatment options that are gaining traction, things like use of ketamine or low-dose naltrexone. How have you found? We offer both of those things in our practice. And I would say that I got into prescribing low-dose naltrexone, gosh, before the pandemic, probably four years ago or so, maybe it started even with just a patient from time to time that had a stable dose that just wanted a refill. (laughs) Would you prescribe this? And then exploring it more on my own, because really it's a newer treatment. So low-dose naltrexone is a medication that was approved in the eighties. It's an opioid receptor blocker. The full dose or high-dose naltrexone is 50 milligrams. So five, zero. The most studied dose for low-dose 
naltrexone is four and a half milligrams. So it's about one-tenth of that bigger dose. And we prescribe that medication for patients with chronic pain or fibromyalgia. I've had mm -hmm. a lot of success actually also in the EDS patients with that medication mm -hmm. and really both with EDS and fibromyalgia, which are not the same thing, but have some common features in addition to pain control. Uh, it's often very helpful with the brain fog type of symptoms that people discuss mm -hmm. And that's really what, one of the things that's been exciting. In fact, I saw a patient yesterday where we were discussing continuing her low dose naltrexone prescription. I was taking it on from another prescriber and we discussed, Hey, at this point, I actually, am not sure if it's helping my pain as much. And maybe it did initially, but I feel like my brain function is better. I'm more able to go do stuff and just feel functional if, than if I don't take it. That's pretty incredible to yeah. see. And then. Can you talk to us a little bit more about ketamine? Mm -hmm. So ketamine is an anesthetic drug. Historically, it's been an anesthetic for surgery. People are, or an adjunct even to other anesthetics for surgery. Sometimes people hear about it being used in veterinary populations because it yeah. can be given IM. So you can give somebody a shot of it and they'll just space out and they'll be to a point where like you could suture up a little cut on them. If you I remember, I think my only really exposure in training was in the pediatric emergency department or maybe a kiddo who had broken a bone and needed that bone reset in the yes. ER. It's a really useful medication. It has some really unique properties. There is like no other drug that can that wow. with. give somebody a very brief intramuscular injection. And then they're just in another place mentally. It is a unique medication. It's been studied in recent years when it was given as an adjunct for anesthesia. Some people started to notice antidepressant effects being described. Now it's commonly used and this is off label. So it's not in the FDA approved label for this medication, but it's commonly used in an off-label way as an infusion for depression when given as a one-hour infusion. I guess it's really not even depression it's, it's, uh, only, but depression, PTSD are some of the biggest indications for these like mental health infusions, which are usually done over one hour, sometimes one to two as a series of treatments. Usually it's usually a treatment. It's not always a cure, but it's really been impactful for many people. And in fact, like reversal of suicidality is one of the things that people have seen when patients are given ketamine, but for pain. So I, I help, but give you that information about the mental health. Yeah. It's such a big deal in the mental health community. By yeah. the way, if you have chronic pain, like almost everybody has some level of depression and then pain makes depression worse. depression makes pain yeah. worse. These are inextricable things. So for pain, ketamine has been discussed and studied, particularly for CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome. Mm. It's given also sometimes for other pain conditions. It's often as a four hour infusion. So it's okay. a bigger dose. It's a different infusion, but we've seen some really interesting and exciting results. I have one patient with CRPS and she has an implanted stimulator that works for her and it is helping, but she still has ups and downs with her pain when it's bad. And she has a hard time walking and she'll even, I haven't seen her use a crutch in a while, but she used to be on crutches a lot for this foot. When it's good, she rides a Peloton and she's super healthy and taking great yeah. care of herself. So infusions have been a huge thing for her to be in Peloton shape with CRPS versus I need to walk around with crutches. Can you explain just like a brief, like minute on what CRPS is for those who may be not familiar kind of with it. 
CRPS is a nerve condition. It's called complex regional pain syndrome, and we abbreviate it CRPS. It used to be called RSD. So some people might've heard it that way, which is just the older name for it. Um, it is a condition that's associated with usually a history of nerve injury. It doesn't have to be a specific nerve. So we might not know exactly what nerve was injured, cut or bruised or stretched. And then the symptoms that show up tend to be swelling of an area, an area of pain. If it was my hand, I might have swelling discoloration. So it might be purple or red. It could also be paler than the other side. It's associated with pain. So allodynia, just where light touch is painful over that area where it shouldn't be. So almost like a sunburn where if you have a sunburn, you get in the shower hurts, that's allodynia. So this other sensation. So we talked about color, swelling, maybe sweating is possibly a feature, abnormal sweating of an area, often problems with range of motion and or strength that we don't have a better explanation is also part of the definition yeah. or the diagnostic criteria. So it's a pretty impactful problem when people have this at a significant Absolutely. level. Absolutely. To be honest, and maybe I wasn't paying attention on that day in medical school, but I don't think was discussed as much. Oh. I remember seeing a particular patient during resident residency who was admitted to the medicine service who and that was my first introduction to it and seeing how impactful it really was on quality of life. And this is probably 10 ish years ago. So their treatments have come a significant way since that time as well. I think this is a problem that's under-recognized and also there's different gradations. I think there's a lot of CRPS with a big swollen red limb that once you see an ortho or a pain, they're going to, they're going to recognize it. But then there's all this kind of in the middle where the findings Mm -hmm. are subtle and it's still probably meets a diagnostic criteria. There's a lot of people in this area that aren't getting treatment or aren't recognized. I think that is a thing because really this problem has to do with the local injury, but there are changes centrally in the nervous system as well that are part of this disease. So very much fits that paradigm of an invisible illness. And that's kind of, we think of that. Would you mind sharing a little bit? You briefly touched on this idea of like centralized pain versus peripheral pain. Talked the very beginning of the podcast with Dr. Martina, who's rheumatologist and has a focus in fibromyalgia, a little bit about centralized pain, but that was like over a year ago. <laughs> so, um, yeah. If you were going to talk to academic pain doctors, they would say there are three types of pain in general. There's a mechanical pain. And so that might be arthritis that's from movement, mechanical bones, rubbing cartilage, et cetera. That's a type of pain. There's neuropathic pain where the nerve itself is damaged, like peripheral neuropathy, where those nerves have been damaged due to blood sugar being out of whack and other reasons perhaps too in other types of peripheral neuropathy, but where there's actual damage to the nerves and that there's a neuropathic type of pain process. Then there's this third type that's now been named nociplastic pain. And I kind of like this name central. There's this concept of central sensitization where the brain gets sensitized to a painful stimulus. And it makes some sense, right? I said earlier that really intense acute pain is a risk for chronic pain. And so that sensitizes this nervous system, right? That your brain can continue to interpret a painful signal, even if the painful signal stops. So that's this idea of a nociplastic 
pain that there can be times when there's damage to your pain processing centers that can produce ongoing chronic pain. CRPS is one of these conditions that involves nociplastic pain. And I think fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. is often thought of in this category as well, where there are legitimate alarms. This pain is a real thing, but there's not a peripheral alarm going off the way that the patient might perceive that it is. Sure. So the pain generates eventually from the brain signal is sent out and then, but we feel it, sense it, experience it as we would. Yeah. I think location is that. Yeah. And there's like a saying in pain management that all pain is in the brain. If you cut my arm off, where do I experience that? Do I experience that in my arm? Actually, I experience it in my brain, right? You don't need a big peripheral stimulus to experience pain. It can be only here. Maybe this is also why mental health conditions impact chronic pain so much because it's like the fertile ground. If someone has PTSD, has serious depression, has serious anxiety, that is like fertile ground for a pain condition to take hold and worsen. I think that sometimes is a challenging paradigm and concept to accept for folks, especially if folks have been told for a long time, oh, this is in your head in a more dismissive way. Yeah. I'm working on my own language around this. Yeah, exactly. It's real. Pain is real. hundred percent. Your pain is real. I believe you. There's no one else that can judge whether you have pain or not. So hard. The pain is what the patient says it is. Now, as a doctor, I can treat it or not treat it, or I can treat it with certain things, or these are the best treatments for you. But I think there was this idea, maybe in medicine 20 years ago, of, oh, you just don't, that's not real. Like this person's just making it up. I think hopefully we're moving past that to pain is real. This patient's experience is real. And then we're going to tailor the right treatments around the clinical picture. I think it's similarly, I always struggle. How do we quantify fatigue too in kind of similar ways, right? They're just these things that really are as you experience it. And we have different ways that we can describe it to one another and try to rate it, but it is still that very unique individual experience. And that's where I'm back at symptom management of, okay, what are the things that are good for fatigue? Okay. Being as active as possible. What does that look like? It might just be, you walk to the mailbox, do that. And then the longer you work in the space of things that you can do, eventually the space may grow. So as we're thinking about, we have a mix of folks who listen to the podcast, healthcare professionals and folks who may consider themselves patients, general public, do a few kind of logistical questions. Do people typically need a referral to come see a pain specialist? They might. It depends okay. on their insurance. Insurance. Okay. So that's and something certainly the, back with. the policies of the practices. We do allow patients to self-refer, but I know there are practices that don't, that okay. will require a doctor's referral. So that would be, I would say that's very similar to allergy immunology too, <laughs> for the most part. And then what I'm hearing, it sounds like it, for anyone who really is experiencing pain, especially pain that has been going on from outside of kind of, especially that acute window of the first few months after an injury that there, it sounds like there would be a lot of reason and benefit to connect with someone like yourself and you, if they're in the DC Baltimore area, area, I think uh, for sure. And I've definitely had patients initiate care 
Hey, I'm having surgery next week. Can you help me oh, with yeah. some recommendations and even oh. writing down a few things and I'll so jot a little letter or write some things on a prescription pad. And at that point, usually it's like anesthesiologist to anesthesiologist because their care sure. may be from a perioperative surgical team, but in post-op maybe from their surgeon. But yeah, we're glad to help with those things. And certainly for people after surgery who are in a bad way, we see those folks as well. Awesome. We're going to make sure to link to all of your social media, your practice, your YouTube, all of those things. So folks will be able to find you. Your practice website is www.lifestreamhealth.com. If you had one piece of advice to share with folks and trying to become more confident in their approach to their pain, what would you share with them? I think it's super important to lean on general wellness concepts Mm. for self-management. And I think that is often underappreciated that the things that the patient can do for themselves, come see me. I'm happy to write you some referrals and we can work with medications, but for the patient to be confident, really they're part of it too, right? It's not, they're not a passive receiver, hopefully of the medical care, but they're in it and they're taking agency for their own well-being. And so I think leaning on some general wellness principles, finding some dietary changes or light exercise that can work for them can be a great, can be a great help in becoming more confident in dealing with chronic pain, just to develop those self-management techniques. I will have to just say personally, I know when I am incorporating movement on a regular basis, may not be every day, I aim for it every day, but a little something, I know my back pain is considerably better. Now, certainly if I overdo it, (laughs) but finding that happy place, it really, we know that there's so much anti-inflammatory benefit, mental health benefit, all those things. Yes. I think that's so empowering, right? Because who's going to find that right place, but you're going to work with your body. Especially if you are listening and you happen to live in an area that maybe the wait to get into this pain specialist is a lot longer than you would like, because there are some areas that are not as well resourced as DC area or Columbus area where I am thinking about like back, back home, where it is a little bit of a more rural landscape that doing those little things to the best of your ability really can make a difference in the meantime. Yes. That's so powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah. I so appreciate your time, your knowledge, your expertise in helping empower us to be more confident in in our approach to pain, which can be in its own right, just so disempowering sometimes when you're experiencing it. Yes. There's just, there's so much here. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we'll talk soon. Take care. If you like what you're hearing so far and you think others would benefit from hearing it too, it would be amazing if you would take a few minutes to rate and review the Crunchy Allergist podcast. Ratings and reviews are the best way to make podcasts discoverable. I would love it if you'd give me your honest opinion and of course a five-star review would be great. If you click the subscribe button, you will automatically receive weekly episodes without needing to do anything else. If you feel called to share with your friends or family, I would be so grateful. If you'd like to learn more about how we can work together, head over to drkarawada.com 